and welcome back to Industrial Theory. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I hope you all are having a fantastic start to the new year. I certainly am. I am very excited to introduce my guest today, Mr. Steve Richmond. Steve is the CEO of Progetect, which is a company based in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a little bit different of an interview than what we typically do, but I think it's very relevant to our industry. So what Progetech does um, is they are a enterprise asset management service. So imagine everything that needs to be tracked for an industrial cleaning contractor or for a refinery, a chemical company, all of the compliance issues and the fleet management and equipment that they have to track. Well, he creates software that tracks that and allows for greater efficiency and uh, to make sure that you are in compliance and all kinds of fun things like that. Steve started the company 30 years ago and prior to that he worked for a mechanical uh, contracting company so he knows our industry well and I think he has all kinds of insights that will help you understand the importance of enterprise asset management, why our industry needs this type of technology, and he shares his views on leadership. I hope you enjoy it. Hang tight and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back everybody. I'm so excited to introduce my guest to you, to you today, Steve Richmond. Steve, welcome to, uh, on Industrial Theory. Thanks, Gary, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's just jump in. Uh, why don't you tell us about who you are and what you do? Um, I am the owner. I founded a company called Progetech about 30 years ago. And uh, we uh, were based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. We have clients all over the world. Uh, I'd say probably 80% of our business is here in North America. But uh, we provide IBM uh, products and others as a service. Uh, and primarily it's maintenance and reliability. The product is called Maxima. Great. And, uh, and where is the company located? We're in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we have some satellite offices in the U.S. and some people in Australia, but uh, most of us run out of the U.S. All right. So 30 years ago, why did you start the company? And can you tell us a little bit um, <laughs> more about the specific services you provide to your clients? Sure. So 30 years ago, I needed a job. And um, having come from the mechanical contracting business, I wasn't um, completely enthralled with diving back into that as, as a business per se. Uh, became very fascinated with technology very early on and um, tried to write some uh, flat file products to manage maintenance. And, you know, I had crews of 40 or 50 trucks and just trying to keep track of who was doing what, where and when was tough to do with a whiteboard and a, a three by five filing system. So I found out pretty quickly I was not a programmer and uh, just got fascinated with different technology tools that might help me manage things better. Uh, so I founded uh, Projectech, which is technical projects. So we began in uh, building automation systems because that's something I was familiar with. Uh, you know, temperature control, freeze protection, uh, you know, when do you do this, when do you do that types of things. And it evolved over the years. Um, we began uh, working with some software products. We were recruited to sell and 
resell for a couple of companies and uh, through a series of acquisitions, I became an IBM business partner. IBM bought the company that I was working with in uh, 2006. So we've been working with IBM now for 15 years. So when you started the company 30 years ago, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur or was this something that was uh, a brand new to you? Uh, it was completely new to me. I worked in a lot of small businesses prior to, and I had some interesting experiences, but um, I had a lot to learn. And uh, it wasn't what I set out to do. Um, uh, we hire a lot of um, college-age students to give them some real-world experience. Um, Co-op programs are very popular in the Cincinnati area. It was uh, actually fundamentally started at the University of Cincinnati in their mechanical engineering business many years ago. But I'm often asked, you know, what was your plan in, uh, in uh, 1990? And really it was uh, to put food on the table. I just, I, I needed to do something or I was gonna have to go to work for somebody. So it's um, kind of like you burn the boats and you have to move forward. Uh, that's the story of so many entrepreneurs. How did you have this genius idea? I needed, I need a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't uh, really that hard. I was hungry. <laughs> and how about, uh, talk a little bit about making the leap. So going from mechanical contracting into, you know, a much more, what I would assume to be high tech business. What was that jump like for you? Uh, the first 10 years was really bumpy and, and it was kind of difficult for us to define who we were. We were managing projects for people. We were helping companies with expansions and uh, we were using various tools, software tools to, to do this work, to manage this work. And it just showed after a number of years that the people I was doing business with seemed to have more interest in how I was doing what I was doing versus what I was doing for them. And um, when we had the oppor opportunity to become a reseller for a, what was at the time called a computerized maintenance management system, um, it seemed like a natural fit. I was curious. So we were able to do training and, uh, you know, installation back then was a briefcase full of three and a half inch floppies that you shoved in the front of a server. and. Uh, learned an awful lot along the way, a lot of, uh, a lot of skinned knees. <laughs> and it sounds like pivoting, uh, which uh, needs to be like, uh, you know, we need to all be really good at that these days. <laughs> absolutely. We pivoted a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Let's jump into what you do. So describe what enterprise asset management is in a way that people who are unfamiliar with it will understand. Sure. Um, Lots of companies own very big, expensive assets. Um, you can think about generating systems in uh, traditional power plants that burn coal or wind turbines out in Wyoming, um, solar farms, uh, manufacturing, uh, planes, trains and automobiles, anything that's expensive, um, capital intensive. It's really important to keep uh, keep track of that asset from uh, cradle to grave. You need to know what you paid for it, what it's costing to maintain it, uh, are qualified people working on it, are we providing it with uh, correct fare and, and uh, care and feeding, um, all this information. And of course, anytime you're, you're operating capital intensive businesses, you have uh, compliance issues and federal agencies to keep happy and reporting requirements and all of that goes into enterprise asset management. 
So how did somebody get started with, uh, with EAM? Is it a difficult process? How do you, how do you walk through, you know, whether it's a behemoth like a Exxon or a Dow or a small company that isn't necessarily technologically advanced? Yeah, good question. I think most you'll, you'll find that most of the big companies have some sort of systems in place. They may have homegrown something over the years or they may have acquired something. Um, so they have data and they have processes, they have things in place. So my advice is always to begin with the end in mind. What You're interested in doing this for a reason. What's the outcome that you're looking for? You know, more reliable assets, better reporting tools, uh, easier compliance reporting. What is it that you want to accomplish? And, and then work backwards from there to make sure that you're capturing the right information. And most importantly, that you have the right people involved. Um, technology is never going to solve anything. It's a people process and technology uh, three-legged milking stool and and you got to have the right people involved and you got to have good processes the technology is not going to solve it yeah the the uh the crux of failing um uh implementations right oh, yeah. not having the right people not having the right software uh, the right processes in place can make any great software um or software solution uh you know be a flop, I guess. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a bunch of bad data, believe me, it'll give it. It'll continue to give you bad data. It'll do it a little quicker, maybe, than it used to. But it's still going to be bad data. Yeah, well, that's what they say, right? Crap in is crap out. <laughs> no question about it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, can you share an example or a success story of someone in the petrochemical or refining industry? Um, something that that our listeners can relate to. Um, you know, we see a lot in this industry in the last 10 years, um, uh, refineries, uh, midstream piping, um, a lot of these assets have become um, uh, almost like monopoly pieces. They're being bought and sold uh, as tax rules change. There's reasons for people to want to own or, or, or want to sell. And oftentimes people acquire are um, acquiring for financial reasons and they may not have the experience in whatever, right? We, uh, we helped a company a number of years ago up in, uh, in the Newfoundland, Newfoundland area um, with a refinery acquisition and part of it had been mothballed and, and part of it not. And there were people that knew the place. So the human capital was available, but um, through the acquisition, they didn't get any systems at all. And they didn't want to start from scratch with an IT group, um, uh, scarce resources, expensive people. So they just did everything in the cloud, right? So they, they acquire NetSuite, they acquire our solution. We did a bunch of integration. Uh, we got the right people around the table and said, well, what do we need to be tracking? And where's that data? And some of it was in spreadsheets and some of it was in some people's heads and you just um, you start mining it and putting it all together and uh, uh, it's turned into a great success story they're very successful today and uh, all those mothballed areas of the plant are out working uh, it's employing a good number of people it's a, a fun place to be around today and do do most companies start uh, an EAM process because of compliance or are they looking for you know cost reduction like what is what is really the driving force behind um, implementing uh, a solution like yours? 
I'd say there's probably three thirds there. There's usually some sort of event that'll drive about a third of it. Maybe it's a safety problem or a compliance issue. Um, maybe a change in management where they used to do it this way somewhere else and they're bringing in their own team and they wanna make changes or bring in new technology, or it's just time and the evolution of that business for it to grow up, I'll say, and be more sophisticated, you know, use some artificial intelligence, uh, use some business analytics, uh, stop running things uh, with your gut instincts and start running off of uh, clean data and information. Yeah. And so to help put it into context for industrial cleaning contractors, how would uh, enterprise asset management be different than say, you know, a complex uh, fleet management system? Um, well, you, you have to man manage labor and materials, um, and certainly timing and scheduling. And, and more often than not, there's different disciplines involved, which may or may not mean different companies. Uh, different workforces, so different work rules, um, things happening around the clock and trying to, uh, you know, coordinate contractors and and disparate industry people. Um, there's just an awful lot to do that lends itself to technology quite naturally, actually. Um, it's funny you mentioned that business. This past year, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth in that business. Um, oh, really? You used to scrub down an auto plan every so often, and uh, they're scrubbing them down a couple times a day um, yeah. because of the circumstances. So we've seen uh, those companies really gear up, do a lot of hiring, and uh, a lot of organic growth. You know, our customers are uh, putting on second and third shifts and, um, you know, requiring more of our products to get their work done. And there's the reporting that goes along. Uh, everyone has COVID protocols now. So if there's an infection or if there's an exposure, you know, what do we have to do? And it's walk down the process, walk through the procedure and uh, kind of keeps everybody on the same sheet of music. Yeah. And so has COVID been good for your business or have you seen a downturn and then a, a bounce back? It's been a complete, um, a set of polar opposites, Carrie. Um, we've had some companies that were just devastated, you know, which, um, you know, your heart goes out to people who've spent their lives building businesses and all of a sudden they're just poof. Um, uh, on the other hand, we have sold more new and more organic work this year than we ever have in the history of the company. So um, we've pretty much outrun it. We're very blessed. Um, actually, we were. It sounds terrible to say we were built for this. You know, our business continuity plan five years ago was the building's gone. We all have to work from home. How are we going to do that? And we've exercised on that plan three or four times over the last few years. So when it hit this spring, um, it was simply a matter of everybody standing up on Friday afternoon, grabbing a laptop and leaving. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, like like the Rain Gretzky quote, quote. I love it, right? Like, what makes you successful? I I uh, I always be. I'm not going to to chase the puck. I'm always going to be where the puck is going is going to end up. 
I know he said it much more articulately than that, but you get my point. So it's great where that the fuck is going to be, I think is what he said. That's exactly right. But that's, you know, that's what good planning does and being able to say, hey, these kinds of things could happen. And then the next thing you know, you're right where you need to be instead of scrambling. Right, right. And yeah. there's been a number of industries that just naturally looked around the room after six months and said, well, why are we trying to do this internally? Or people aren't even allowed in the building. Why aren't we using, you know, I've been drawing pictures of clouds on whiteboards for 25 years, you know, now people are calling me up and saying, hey, I wanna to go to the cloud. And I'm saying, well, God bless you. I never saw this coming. <laughs> It's about time. <laughs> I didn't think I was speaking English some days, you know. Uh, well, that's a good segue because I, I actually want to talk about uh, technology and cybersecurity a little bit. So uh, a Stone Age back in February, which seems like a lifetime ago, but it was like the first major crisis I did. Actually, it was like the second big disruption um, I dealt with in 2020. Uh, we got a ransomware attack and several... Uh, companies in the industrial cleaning space have also um, had cyber attacks. So I know that you're part of the Forbes uh, Technology Council and, and you do quite a bit of, uh, of thought leadership and writing around cybersecurity. So why do you think all businesses should care about it, no matter what their size is? Well, you have to because you, you are, um, you're absolutely helpless if the wrong people get into the wrong places. And your data is everything, no matter the size of your business. If you can't get at your customer list, if you can't send out an invoice, if you have uh, restricted data, heaven forbid, um, you know, something of, uh, you know, an intellectual property situation, it, it's just a must. And, um, you know, my personal opinion is it has to start from the top down, you know, the owner, the CEO, the president, whomever, they have to decide that this is important. And uh, people will follow. Uh, most people think of cybersecurity as, you know, the guys in the black hats hacking their way in. And, and while there is quite a bit of that, um, we find that most of the time it's not anything nefarious at all. It's an innocent mistake by an employee who shared a password or responded to the wrong email. Um, the phishing has become very sophisticated in what things look like, um, even texts. I've had employees in meetings get texts from me asking for information. And uh, we spend a lot of time testing. Um, we have external people come in and look at our systems and look at our people and and um, actually, we send out our own fishing expeditions to our own employees and, and grade them on how well they identify what is right and what is wrong and what they should and shouldn't do. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I was in the situation where, you know, I thought we were so small. We're a tiny little company in Durango, Colorado. Like, why would we ever get a, a cyber attack? And it was complete naive thinking. And of course, now I, I know so much more and, you know, I've put in as the best protect, pre precautions in place that I can. Of course, there's no guarantee that it's going to happen again if someone clicks on that wrong email. But I think a lot of people think that like, oh, it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to somebody else or we're too small or, or that stuff doesn't happen. So I think it's, you know, naivety and complacency that make people not put the proper um, measures in place to protect themselves against it. 
You're right, Jerry. And, and actually it's all become automated, right? It's not the human being at a keyboard trying to guess your password. You've got robots that are just surfing, surfing. And all they're looking for is someone that left a port open by accident, some innocuous way of getting in. And, you know, the old school was we all went to the office, we all went to work, so we had the castle, right? And we could put guns in the turrets and we could put five foot thick walls around our castle. Well, now we sent everybody home and they're, and they're just on the other side of a piece of drywall and there isn't a castle. And there's so many more points of potential entry and so many other places that can be attacked that uh, you really have to think about it more universally, more globally. It's a, it's a big change. And so besides uh, fishing expeditions and doing testing and training of your employees, what are some other things that business leaders can do to put uh, precautionary measures in place? Well, I think a big thing is to, is to talk internally about who has access to what and what's necessary. Not everybody needs global access to every system. Um, certain people by job titles can be restricted to the area that they should be restricted to. And that goes across the organization. There are areas in my business I don't want anything. I don't want a password. I don't want to touch that because if they have a problem, they have a, you know, a finite number of people they can talk to, look at logs to view to figure out how it happened. And, and the bigger that pool of people is, the more difficult it is to troubleshoot. Um, there's also some great certifications, you know, ISO certs specifically for security. Um, we take very seriously and, and they're great discipline tools. They ask you the hard questions. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your insight on that. All right. And then the final topic I want to talk to you a little bit about something that's near and dear to me, which is leadership. Um, so you've been a CEO for many, many, many years now. Well, not that many, right? Only 30. <laughs> so what's your philosophy What's your philosophy on building a strong team? And how has that philosophy changed as you've, as you've um, grown throughout your, your career? Well, two things. First of all, I've never seen a, uh, a good basketball coach with bad players. So it, it's all about recruiting the right people. And it took us a long, long time to figure out what that meant. You know, I am, uh, I've, I've never been a um, finger in the middle of your back type of manager. So if you're not self-driven and you're not a good communicator, then you're probably not a good fit for me, but that doesn't mean you won't fit well for someone else somewhere else, right? The, um, the thing about people is getting the right folks together. And then I believe the trick and what really turned the corner for us was getting them on the same page from a motivational prospect. Um, we all go to work for money, but what metric can we assign that everyone's familiar with, that everyone can relate to, that um, drives everybody similarly, whether they're in sales or they're in delivery or um, HR, you know, everybody's being, uh, everybody's got their eye on the same ball. Yeah, that really resonates with me. Um, after four, I just uh, hit my 14th year uh, leading Stone Age. And for the first time, I have like a really solid executive team. There's always been, you know, a, a hole or a weak link. And I've made some mishires. And I will tell you that the difference that I feel in having a really strong team who is you know, leading and taking initiative and and all on the same, you know, all on the same team, all on the same page and the stress that it takes off of me. But 
I was always kind of embarrassed that it took me this long to figure it out, but it is hard to do. It's the hardest thing you do. And it, believe me, it didn't happen easy for me. I, if I hadn't lasted as long as I did, I may have never figured it out. It's very, very difficult. It's hard. It's the hardest thing we do, finding and retaining talent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think you brought up an interesting point, right? It has to be able to work for you as the leader. And it doesn't mean that that person is a failure or that you're doing something wrong. It, it really has to be that cohesive fit. And I think that's one of the mistakes that I made um, in some of my mishires is, you know, I was trying to look for a certain type of person and then, you know, saying either you have to fit to me and that wasn't right or me trying to modify to that person and that's never going to work. And Every time I've done that, it has turned out that that person leaves the company. <laughs> and that's just such a, a, a tough place to be. It's tough to do. And it's, it's always hard on both individuals. But I'll tell you, the other thing I've learned is as soon as you realize you've made a mistake, you got to cut your losses. You got to do it quick. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Very. It's very expensive. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Oh, I wish there was just like this magic formula you could apply to talent uh, recruitment and, and management, but people are just so dang messy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, until you hire the first employee, right? That's right, that's right, yeah. All right, so I read an interview that you did with uh, Thrive Global, and I agree with your statement that you, you said, happy employees make happy customers, which I completely agree. So how do you intertwine the employee experience and the customer experience, and why do you think it matters? Well, I think you have to treat people as people. You have to give them uh, responsibilities. You have to compensate them appropriately. Um, you have to understand who needs a pat on the back and who needs a kick in the tail sometimes. And it, it, it all comes down to, you know, the continuing education as far as I'm concerned. People, if people can see a way forward, if there's a career path, if there's something they can aspire to do this year or become next year, um, I think that gives them satisfaction in what they do. And I think satisfied people are then in turn trying to pass that along. And, you know, our, our business, we're, we're providing software as a service into the reliability industry. We're just trying to make our customers look good, right? And, and they have career goals and they have things that they want to accomplish and metrics that they're measured by. And um, for us, it's just about helping them along their path as, as we move along ours. Yeah, I share the same philosophy. That's what we try to do. We try to make our customers look good. How can we help you be, make more money? <laughs> How do we help you look good in front of your clients? Um, I think that is a fundamental aspect of business that a lot of companies surprisingly just don't seem to get right. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yeah, one of the things that really gives me a great amount of pride and is that when we have our customers come and visit us, at Stone Age, which we're in Durango, Colorado. So of course it's a great place to come and visit. People like look at it as a vacation or, you know, let's, let's go out and ride four wheelers or shoot guns or ski or whatever it is. But when they come to our cult into our um, into our company, they always leave saying, oh, I really want to work here. Can I have a job here? You know, when I'm done with this, I'd love to come and work for you. And I think that is such a testament of inter intertwining that employee experience and that customer experience when your customers 
not only want to use your product, but they actually say like, that was a great company. And I, I and that brings so much pride and joy um, to every single Stone Age employee. So that's why I really um, was curious about your statement. Yeah, I love the statement. It's actually the ultimate compliment as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so as we wrap up, what, is, what are the two top takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Um, I think from a technology perspective, you just have to understand that technology is never going to solve a thing. It's really a people business. And um, you have to involve the right people and you got to listen. Um, technology doesn't happen on its own. And uh, many a failed project uh, had the wrong people in the room, you know. Um, the other thing I think is that um, when you're trying to improve, I'm, I'm talking about our industry, you know, the maintenance and reliability world, when you're trying to improve upon a process or cost reduction, whatever it is you might be trying to accomplish, um, you need to study the data that you're collecting. So many people spend time collecting information and it is of no use for anybody for any reason and constantly asking why are we doing something um, as if you were a third party outsider. And then answering that question honestly, I think really gets a lot of messy stuff out of the way and gets you focused on the right things. I cannot even tell you, like those two statements are so relatable to me right now because <laughs> we're doing a big digital transformation and it's like, it's not the technology that's going to save us, it's us that's going to save us. Uh, and why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve here? I think I've asked those, said those statements probably like 50 times in the last six weeks. <laughs> All right. Filing cabinets are the kiss of death. Why do we need them? Get away with them. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, all right, Steve, how can people find you? Project's um, pretty well um, been online for a number of years. The company name is, is spelled a little strangely, but we've got a good web presence. I'm certainly a uh, LinkedIn person and, and try to communicate and share there wherever I can. So those would be the two primaries. Um, the other social media stuff's obviously out there, but uh, that would be where I spend most of my time. There's also a new community of Maximo users in North America that we run called More Maximo, M-O-R-E Maximo.com. And it's a place for people to congregate and exchange information and ideas. And um, they might not necessarily be talking to Steve, but uh, fortunately for them, they'll probably be talking to some really smart people. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot from you. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will as well. And I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to meet you, Karen. Yeah, you too. All right. Hang tight and I'll be right back. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Steve and learned a lot. I most certainly did. It was fun to laugh with him. He's such a great guy. Okay. Until the next episode of Industrial Theory, we will bid our goodbyes. I hope you have a fantastic day. Stay safe, stay warm, stay cool wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening.